All right, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to what are we going to do? What will we do? Will we go back to the last book? The answer is yes. We go back to Revelation. Open your Bibles to Revelation 21. And 22 is where we're going to be looking at. The Australian coat of arms pictures two creatures. And Doug Smith, the Australian, you're here, brother. You can verify this for me and for all of us. Can you bear witness to this? Sometimes you wonder as a preacher where you get your facts. You can clarify it for me. The emu, a flightless bird, and a kangaroo, which I describe as a hopping hobbit-like creature, right? The big feet, little fur on the top. The animals were chosen because they all share the same characteristic. They all have the same trait that the people of Australia valued as a country. Here's the trait. The emu and the kangaroo can only move forward. They cannot go backwards. The emu has a three-toed foot, which if it was to try to travel backwards, it would fall down. The kangaroo, of course, has what? That big tail, which prevents it from moving backwards. So both these animals can only move forward, which leads us into why we're going to do the book of Revelation or continue in the book of Revelation. Why the book of Revelation? The book of Revelation is here to cause you to move forward. It's to cause you to move forward when you're struggling to believe and trust in God's goodness for you. You know what that's like. I mean, I can state that theoretically and I can state it theologically. I'm not trusting in the goodness of God. Or we can say something like this. Why is this happening to me, God? And we all can relate to that. We all can relate to why is this happening to me? And of course, at the core of that is I'm struggling with trusting that God is good towards me. The book of Revelation is here to move us forward when we also, it seems like God is distant and that darkness is winning. And again, that's stated propositionally. We look out and we say, okay, God seems distant to me and darkness seems to be winning to me. And the question that arises in our heart is what? Where are you, God? Where are you? I can state it propositionally again. We need to move forward when you're spiritually exhausted and you can't find the strength to go on. And then you ask the question or your soul asks it for you, even though it scares you. How long, O Lord? How long? And then finally, there's some of us in moving forward. We could care less about God. State it propositionally. I don't care about God and the things of God. And the question is that arises within our heart and our soul is, why should I care about God? Now, I need to make a little clarification on what it means to move forward in the Christian life and what it means to move forward by the book of Revelation. Because we have a lot of misunderstanding today about what moving forward looks like. So I'll do it this way. 
And the reason why this is fresh in my mind, because it happened when I, on my day off is Friday, and I'm wrestling around with my youngest daughter. She was winning, but I was going to get back. I was only bound, down by two points. I knew one move that would get her every time. And I hear my phone beep up in my study. I thought, that's odd. Uh, someone called, someone called, someone called, someone called. And then they left a message. So I said, this might be important. So I went up and got the phone, turned it on. At the other end of the line, a very desperate woman named Heather Newsom, barely able to control her hysteria, says to me, Jeff, call immediately. It's an emergency. I turn around and I call her. And she goes on to tell me that they have a young RUF intern, just graduated from college, who just lost her fiance, who was also an RUF intern. And then here's the kicker. He took his own life. A believer in Christ, a leader among college students. And then Heather goes, we just found out the news and now Shaner has to tell her right now. Moving forward in the Christian life is not the myth of progress. Do you know what I mean by that? It's not the belief that Christianity will make your life better. The myth of progress says that Christianity is going to make your life better in this life. It means that there'll be less heartache and there'll be less pain, there'll be less frustration, maybe even less sin. Maybe even less financial problems. Maybe the bottom line is less loss, right? Now, I want you to hear me very, very plainly, please. For this RUF intern, Christianity did not work. Her fiancé took his own life. Moving forward for her is not some mythical state of progress. Biblical moving forward for her is moving forward to real faith in God even when your life is going backwards. That's biblical moving forward. And it's to that kind of moving forward that God gave you this grand and glorious last book of the Bible. It's to move you forward that way when all hell is breaking loose. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to look at 21 verses 1 through Eight. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. 
And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God. He will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the Holy Spirit. For it's not by might and it's not by strength, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. And so, Lord, it's not by preacher, not by teacher, not by the willpower of the hearer, not by the, the gutsy commitments of the hearer, but by your spirit. And so, Lord, send your spirit or we won't hear. Send your spirit or we won't see. Send your spirit or nothing will happen here this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why in the world would we look at the ending of Revelation in the beginning of our new life and ministry in this building? I mean, why in the world, in the beginning of this new building era of worship, nurture, and witness, why would we look at the last book of Revelation? Not only just the last book, but the last two chapters of Revelation. Why look at the ending? I mean, Revelation is way too controversial, isn't it? I mean, if you're going to put your best foot forward into a community and you want to be winsome and winning to those that are kind of investigating your church, you don't go to the controversial stuff. You don't go to the book of Revelation. Church growth folks would say, you're shooting yourself right in the head, Jeff, to go with the book of Revelation. There's too many varied views that are held vehemently, right? I mean, we have issues of church in Israel. We have the what? The 144,000. We have the rapture and we have the millennium and we have the tribulation. We have the dragon, the beast. We have the Antichrist and we have all the end times chronology. All that kind of stuff is packed into this book. Why in the world would you look at this at the beginning of ministry in a new church? It's a good question. Revelation, it gets worse. Revelation is way too complex. I mean, it's so bizarre. It's so out there. It's so picturesque and power-packed pictures and images. I mean, theological, tough theological threads that you got to hold together. It's just way too complex for us. Well, we can add another one. As I say these things, I wonder why I'm preaching it too. <laughs> Revelation is way too conceptual. It's too much theology. It's too much head knowledge. It's too theoretical. 
I mean, when you get to Revelation, it's about pictures of reality. It's about interpreting reality. It's not about applications of reality. Revelation hardly comes at you and says, here's a how to handle to get on with your life. Go. Revelation doesn't do that. It gives you these power packed images and pulls back the curtains of heaven and an earth and says, this is how things really are. And that's supposed to be application enough. Right. So why in the world would we look at the ending of Revelation for the beginning of the church? Let me tell you a story. Okay. It begins with a twin. And this particular twin went through life looking like another, as all twins do. And looking like another, it was familiar with comments that he would either hear to his face or out in social circles around him. But it was always in the sense of looking at his personal identity in relation to someone else's identity. It was always comments that he was very familiar with that seemed to overlook his own unique identity in the world, his own unique stamp in the world. He was a twin. And so when people would look at him, it was always in comparison to his twin, right? So he would always hear things like, oh, you two are just alike. Or, oh, now which one are you? And, oh, you know, you don't seem to be as outgoing as your brother. Or, oh... Is your personality the same as your brother? I mean, it was always in comparison. So maybe that was a major shaping influence to why this twin had this very rugged, self-reliant, realist personality that he had. In fact, at times, this self-reliant realist was a crude courage, right? When 11 followers, 11 of his closest friends, were in a discussion and their person, this, this person that they believed to be a David-like Messiah, when he said he had to go somewhere and that there might be hostility and death awaiting him there, and all his 11 friends looked around and looked at each other like, ooh, this is not what we got into this thing for. And he was crude in his courage. And what did he say? Well, this twin said, let us go also that we might die with him. Hmm. It showed itself in a show-me-the-money cocky attitude, too. In fact, there was one of his 11 friends came up to him very breathlessly, and they came up to him, and they said, because he wasn't there, they said, we have seen the Lord. Now, that was a major thing. Because just earlier, they saw their Lord, or at least heard about it, because they were too afraid. Some of them did. They saw him executed on a cross. And these friends say they've seen the Lord. And his show me the attitude, show me the money attitude, he said, look, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. As we say in our house, you've got to always watch when you say always and never. Eight days later, the doors are locked because they're hiding for their lives. And Jesus shows up. 
And he walks up to this self-reliant realist and he says, Thomas, see my hands. Put your finger right here. See my side that has the big hole in it from the spear. Put your hand here. And of course, what happened to Thomas? Did he need to do that? My Lord and my God. Why are we beginning a new era in the building by looking at the ending in two chapters in Revelation? And the answer is because you see Jesus. You see Jesus, and it's enough for you. The whole book of Revelation is about seeing Jesus. I mean, it starts, those of us that are just joining us, the book of Revelation starts with the first vision of Jesus. In fact, let's look at it real quickly. You've got your Bibles open, so turn to chapter 1. It's in verse 12. And what you do is you see Jesus. It says, Then I turned and I saw the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of seven lampstands was one like the Son of Man. He was clothed with a long robe and a golden sash was around his chest. And the hairs on his head were like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand... He held seven stars from which his mouth came, a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun in full strength. And what you get a picture is the first scene that John gets of Jesus is the exalted Jesus. So he doesn't get the picture of Jesus on earth that he had. He gets the picture of Jesus exalted and glorified. And that's why you have these mixed pictures of Old Testament pictures of this ancient of days and this divine warrior and this divine Davidic king that was promised. And Jesus is it. And he sees Jesus and the content of seven letters to seven churches flows from this first vision of Jesus. So seeing Jesus led to seven letters to seven churches. Jesus became the content of them. Now we get the second vision, turn over to chapter 4, and you look at chapter 5, we get a vision of a throne, the one who sits on the throne, and then we get a vision of a lion lamb, and here's the second view of which we see Jesus. Well, we see the throne, 4-1, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. I mean, it's in exclamation points, I hope, in your Bible, because it was a shock. It's always a shock to the biblical writers, though it might not be a shock to us, because we take it for granted. It is always a shock that heaven is opened. What's assumed for most of the biblical writers is that heaven should be shut out because of sinners. And they just can't imagine the doors opened. And so you get a picture that the doors open and the first voice, which I heard speaking to me, was like a trumpet said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven and there was one who seated on the throne. And then, of course, we have this incredible pictures of who that was and what that was like. And then we go to chapter five. We're still in the same vision. This is the second vision. And you've got I saw on the right hand of this one who's seated on a throw a scroll. Now, remember, what we got here is you have the, the king of kings sitting on the throne and he has this scroll. And in the scroll we come to find out, has writing on the inside and on the outside. And there are seals that bind this scroll. 
and the writing on the inside and outside, we come to find out is the things of the kingdom of God. And it's good news kind of things. It's the most glorious, ultimate realities of the universe. It's actually what's in this scroll becomes the content for the rest of the book. So you get this first vision of Jesus and the content of Jesus becomes seven letters to seven churches. Then you get the second view and you've got this one sitting on the throne holding the scroll that has all the good news realities of the kingdom of God. And this becomes the content of the rest of the book. And of course, it's who can open it. And the great search begins in heaven, over the seas, under the earth, and no one could be found except one lion lamb, the scroll opener. And now we're moving through the rest of the book because of these two governing visions. So Revelation moves, moves forward by seeing Jesus. And so personally, when we get into here, you might just want to consider this as an introduction to what we're going to be doing for the next couple weeks. We're going to look at the last two chapters in Revelation. And I want us to see why we're doing that. And why it goes against, ah, oh, the book is too complex, the book is too theoretical, the book is too complicated, okay? Seeing Jesus will move you forward in real faith in God, even when your life is going backwards. That's the big idea. What's the big idea that we're going to be looking at? Seeing Jesus actually moves you forward to real faith in God, even when your life is going backwards. That's the point. So it moves you forward from unbelief to belief. You know that when you struggle and you have those hard thoughts about God, and you, that scares you to have these hard thoughts about God, usually when you're in distressful, heartbreaking, painful, suffering times, hard thoughts about God fly over your head like a flock of birds, and it seems like you have just as much control as you do having those birds fly over your head. And hard thoughts. Is he good? Is he in control? Has he taken a break? Does he care about me? Does he really love me? Hard thoughts. And what the book of Revelation does is it moves you forward from hard thoughts to beautiful thoughts, to true thoughts, and to gracious thoughts. And when we have all kinds of speculation and we have all kinds of questions and those that are inside the church and outside the church and real skeptical questions, we start doubting a lot of things, going back to things from historical, scientific things to outright psychological and emotional things. What Revelation does is it actually moves you forward from skepticism to a passionate conviction about what's true. It can turn your bitterness and your anger into a holy contentment and a more authentic communion with God. That's what this book can do to you. I mean, think of your bitterness and think of your anger that plagues most everyone in this room. You don't get what you want. You rage on the inside. When life throws you a curveball, you rage on the inside. When you get something new and you get your first ding, you rage on the inside. And the book of Revelation can actually move you forward into a holy contentment 
and authentic communion with God. Seeing Jesus also moves you forward in sanctification. Now, I know we here have heard this for many times, and I think we're getting it. I think maybe I'm beginning to get it. But seeing Jesus actually transforms us. I mean, we're called to see a lot of things today that claim to transform you. There's a lot of things going on in the Christian life today. Pick up a book. Go listen to the latest seminar. They're going to tell you this is how your life changes. And, I, and I'm at a loss because no one hardly says seeing Jesus is going to change you. No one's hardly going to give you theology of Jesus as the way in which you have power to refuse to sin. Right? So seeing Jesus moves you forward in sanctification actually gives you the want to to obey and it actually enables you to obey. Seeing Jesus actually causes you to lay aside your own agenda and to pursue a loving, listening interest in someone else. Seeing Jesus furthers your growth in grace. Seeing Jesus furthers a transformed life. Seeing Jesus actually creates a community that's of changing lives. As we go forward in a church as well, it moves us toward a passionate mission. Seeing Jesus does this. When you think of worshiping God humbly and passionately, if we are seeing Jesus, we begin to worship God humbly and passionately. There begins to be a real pulse to do so. We also will be sat unified in seeking God's glory above all things and in all things. Seeing Jesus furthers a vision and furthers a unified purpose of all of us to pursue God's glory. Seeing Jesus will also unite us in a community with one another. Seeing Jesus will cause us to stick to one another even when it hurts, even when it's inconvenient, even when it demands sacrifice. We will also bleed the Bible. If you see Jesus, you're going to bleed the Bible. You can't get enough of it. You're going to want to read it. You're going to want to study it. You're going to want to classroom it. You're going to want to teach it and preach it and live it. You're going to want the Bible all the time. You're going to bleed it because when you see Jesus, you want the Bible. You can't get enough of the Bible. Do you see what Revelation is telling us? Seeing Jesus actually moves all of life. Seeing Jesus moves you individually. Seeing Jesus moves the church corporately. I think what happens is, is we talk a lot about our responding to Jesus, and we talk a lot about our hoping in Jesus, and we talk a lot about opening the door of our life to Jesus, but we can't respond to something that we're not given. And so seeing Jesus actually fuels those realities. Okay? If we see Jesus, we will never say things like this. I don't need God. If we see Jesus, we will never say, my life doesn't matter. If we see Jesus, we would never say, I can't be forgiven. If we see Jesus, we would say, we would never say, you know, I don't want to worship and I don't want to pray. The Bible is boring and the Bible is dry to me. We would never say that if we see Jesus. If we see Jesus, we would never say, who's my neighbor, which we heard last week. We'd never say... We don't want those kind of people in our church. We would never say that person is out of God's reach. We would never say, let the church in Iran take care of reaching its own country. We've got to take care of ourselves first. 
Seeing Jesus, you'll never hear that if you see Jesus. Seeing Jesus, you'd never hear someone say, all is darkness, all is hopeless, and all is lost. If we see Jesus, you will never hear someone say, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And so we need to see Jesus to move forward to real faith in God even when your life is going backwards. So that's our plan. And for the next couple of weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to get, look at the last looks that Jesus actually gives you in all the Bible. In other words, this is the last two chapters, the last looks that Jesus wants you to have before before the book is closed, the last two looks of Jesus that you will get in all the Bible, that's what we're going to look at. And we're going to spend a couple weeks doing it. And we're going to end this particular time together by looking at verse 1. So if you go back to Revelation, and let's look at verse 21, chapter 21, and let's look at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. One day, we will never move backwards. These last two chapters begin with a very powerful reality. It's spent over 20 chapters going through the dynamics and the ultimate reality that you live in this present evil age and you live in the first heaven and the first earth and the first heaven and the first earth has lots of problems with it. Things aren't as they should be. The earth is upside down. Heaven and earth has been turned upside down and shaken all up. Things are not as they should be. We intuitively have this sense in which we know we need and long for more, but yet we look around and reality is not what it should be. And so the book of Revelation tells you why that's the case. It gives you a heavenly commentary right from the throne room of God himself and says, this is why things aren't the way they should be. And then finally at chapter 21, you get a new heaven and a new earth coming down from God and the first heaven and the first earth pass away. All steps backwards at this point are removed. It's a funny way of saying it. When you look at it, you get a new heaven and new earth. And then look at that phrase right after that. The sea was no more. That is a very interesting way to state something. I mean, what does that mean? It's strange. The sea is no more. Well, we know there seems to be, according to the scriptures, water, rivers of life. There seems to be seas, which we'll see in in heaven. There seems to be these realities, right? So what does this mean? What actually means this, the sea symbolizes the deep and dark realm from which all chaos and rebellion and all misery emerge and ravage the earth. If you go through the Old Testament, it's always the deep, dark places, the deep sea. The sea is the symbolized reality in which out of the deep and out of this darkness, this is where all chaos and rebellion and misery emerge and they ravage the earth. And that's why Jesus, he would do lots with calming the sea and showed his supremacy over the sea, the troubled waters. In fact, Daniel, he said that there were four pagan powers that would come and persecute God's people. He foresaw it and they would arise out of the sea. 
Remember John in chapter 13 when he was talking about the dragon and the dragon has this mock creation because the dragon is a is Satan and Satan is trying to imitate the creator or God. And so he's creating and he has this mock creation and out of the stormy sea comes the beast. Right. And what's the beast called to do in 13 and 14? Ravage the church. And so what we get a picture here is, is that the stormy sea in the new heavens and the new earth is gone. And now you get a calm and clear sea. In fact, in Revelation 12 and Revelation 15, the picture of the sea we get in heaven is clear and calm as glass. And remember where it is? You have the throne room and then you have this vast sea of glass. All is calm. All is clear. All is as it should be. In this life, we have the sea. In the life to come, we get a sea of glass. Now, how do you know that you won't pass away with the first heaven and the first earth? It's passing. How do you know you won't pass with it? I mean, how can this be? If you're reading Revelation and you're a reader like us, if you're an Old Testament reader or a new believer, if you're reading this, an Israelite, you're asking yourself, how can this be? I mean, how can there be a new heavens and a new earth? And the answer that's been swimming through these pages goes right back into the vision of Jesus that we've been given over and over again in this book is that what Jesus ends up doing is that he becomes the second and greater and better Adam. And in doing so, he obeys God perfectly where Adam failed to obey God and where you and I failed to obey God. And so we have a second Adam who comes in into the wilderness and he says, in place of the first Adam, he says, God send me, I'll stand in the gap and I will take creation forward to consummation. I will make all things new. A new heaven and a new earth. And I'll do it. My own work, by my own hands, my own obedience in death and in life. And so what this means is this. This means that even when that young man took his life on Friday and went to meet the Lord, the Lord did verse 4 to him. Let's read it together. And he will wipe away every tear from his eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. I think we'll feel the weight of this if we take one of the greatest cultural sins, suicide. And we show and we see by the text that that sin is not bigger than Jesus. 
And that Jesus perfectly obeyed. That he is the second and greatest Adam. And that though it is a sin, the Father will embrace him as his son. I think, I think we'll comprehend grace if we can see that. So do you see Jesus? And we're just getting another first, last glimpse at him. In our next couple of weeks, we'll get more pictures of him. But I want you to see, right from the beginning, he's going to make all things new. And because all things will be new, you have a place and I have a place where there will be no more moving backwards. Now, if we get it, that's going to move us forward to a real faith in God, even when your life is moving backwards. Amen.